You know what I've discovered about myself, and this is probably not really unique to myself, but it is especially true of myself, is I really like the idea of working out, but not actually working out. Like, you know what, you know what I mean? Like, the concept is a really, really good idea. Like, the idea of being healthy and disciplining yourself and getting up early to make sure you're fit and healthy. Like, it's good for your mind. It's good for your body. It's good for your, like, all these things. There are all these benefits. But there's something about actually putting that idea into practice that I can't just get over. Like, that hurdle. Like, and I have lots of excuses. Like, I could give you reason after reason. Like, the responsibilities I have with my kids. Or, like, in January, I was like, you know, I'm going to start. And I'm like, but everybody's starting a gym membership in January. So you don't want to start then. So right now I'm just really timing it out to figure out when's the right time that not everybody else is doing it. Um, but there's, some, there's something about just that idea, right? It's easy to know what to do, but then actually doing the thing it is that you know you should do is a whole different idea. Or recently I've been getting into golf, which I realize this is a terrible time of the year to get into golf. Like you can't golf anywhere. But I've been watching a lot of golf instructional videos, which I know um, when you can't actually golf, it's a really bad idea. So I know all the things I should do to hit the ball straight. The problem is I have very little opportunity or even just actually practice to actually do the thing that I'm seeing to do. So like I could explain to you all the reasons why if you hit a ball and it curves and goes way to the right, I, I can explain to you why that happens and what I should do differently to not do that, but I can't actually not do that. Right there, because there's, there's, there's one thing to knowing all the information and what you should do, and then putting that into practice is a whole different experience. Today, as we continue our series, Come and See, we want to do just that and talk about what does it look like to put into practice what we have come to see? What does it look like to put into practice the way of Jesus? Now, as we continue in the series today, we are going to dive into this by looking at some words from the Apostle Paul. And so the Apostle Paul, he came and he saw Jesus. And so as he saw Jesus, he then wrote letters to churches. And he wrote um, specifically a letter to a young pastor by the name of Timothy that we'll spend some time today. And the reason he writes and encourages so much of what he does is because he knows that when you come and see Jesus, it doesn't end there. Because if you come and see, but you don't go and do, you're missing what Jesus has in store for you. That Jesus has in mind both of these things, coming and seeing, coming and seeing, having an encounter with Jesus, an experience of the love and the grace, the mercy of Jesus. Experiencing by the death and resurrection of Jesus, the unwarranted gift that you are given and also that Jesus, when he invites you to be a disciple, he's inviting you to go and do, to go and make more disciples, to be who he called you to be. Now, it's important that we are clear that when we are talking about the forgiveness of sins, that comes simply because of the gift that God has given to us. We, we come and see, we experience the goodness of God and it has nothing to do with what we've done for God. That's by the death and resurrection of Jesus that he offers his mercy and his forgiveness, his love. We are loved not because of what we do. And it's in light of that that we then live as a disciple of Jesus. Not in order to earn that love or to earn that grace or to earn that forgiveness, but it's because of that forgiveness. Grace is not opposed to effort. 
And so the invitation to come and follow me, the invitation is an invitation to do the things that Jesus did. That's what it means to be a disciple. Rabbis invite their disciples to come and they would watch. They would watch. How does their, how does their rabbi eat? How does he go to the market? How does he wash his hands? What prayers does he pray? And so they're invited to do the same things their teacher did. And so we are invited the same. We come and see. We experience the grace, the love, the mercy of God. And Jesus asks us, now come and follow me. I think of it a lot like I think of my relationship with my kids. That I love my kids and my love for my kids is not based on their behavior. right? Because some days there's good days and some days there's bad days. But the love for them doesn't change. And because I love them, I also have some things in mind for them that I think are actually good for them. Some things that I believe would be best. Like if they do A, it might be better than if they do make another choice. Right? And because I love them, I have, some things that, I have some things in mind for them that would be good for them. That requires their effort. The same is true in our relationship with God. God wants what's best for us. He wants us to have a life and a life to the full. He has that in mind for us. And it requires a little bit of effort. An effort to do what is right. To not always do what your own sinful flesh wants to do. To not always do what the world is trying to convince you that you should do. God has in mind something that he believes is actually good for you. The tension is we can know those things and often still fail to put them into practice. Or we can know, all right, here's the effort that's required. The disciplines I should integrate into my daily life. Yet, when we try to do those things, it often feels like, is this really worth it? Is it worth the discipline to make sure you have a quiet time in the morning before you get up and go about your day? Is it worth the effort to say no to work uh, one day a week? Is it worth the effort to disconnect from the internet to be more connected to other people? Now the answer to any of those is yes, but the tension is in our world, it's often in those things that the payoff doesn't come when you do them. The payoff comes over time, which makes the discipline incredibly challenging because when the payoff isn't immediate, we give up very quickly. We do the reading plan until it's not working. And often, if you start at the beginning, it starts to not work really quickly. We, do, we, we try to get better at prayer until it feels like our prayers aren't being answered or it feels like we're not hearing anything. We try to get better at our relationships with friends until conflict happens and it gets too hard. Right? When the payoff is delayed, we give up earlier. And so I want to look in 1 Timothy Chapter 4, where the Apostle Paul writes these words to this young pastor named Timothy. Now it's important, Paul is writing these, and he's writing them addressing Timothy and his calling as pastor. But he could address any of us in any of our callings, and the, the ideas hold true and apply to our own life. Paul's relationship with Jesus began after he spent a life trying to kill people who followed Jesus. Right? His life was committed to preventing the movement of Jesus from growing and spreading. But while he was on a journey on the road to Damascus, he actually met Jesus. So he's trying to stop people from believing in Jesus and hearing about Jesus. He comes and he sees Jesus and everything from that point on changes. 
And so he becomes a spiritual father of sorts to a young man by the name of Timothy. And so Paul writes knowing the challenge that is presented to following Jesus, knowing the challenge from his own experience, but also knowing the challenges because of what he did to people who followed Jesus. And so he writes to Timothy saying to hold on to your faith, to defend the faith, and to lead and serve out of that. And so for us as a parent, as a spouse, as engineers, as entrepreneurs, as whatever it might be that you do, Paul's words to Timothy could be words to you, encouragement about what is good for you and about the things that you put into practice. Let me begin in verse 1. It says this, The Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Right now, now let's just pause there for just a second. Right, The idea that, that Paul says to Timothy is there will come a day that people don't believe what is true. There will come a day when people will be deceived by their own sinful flesh, by the deception of the enemy. And he says such teachings come through hypocritical liars. I think it's important knowing, especially that language of lies, all throughout the scripture, the way we see the enemy referred to, the one the scriptures call the Satan. He's referred to as a liar. Right? And it's those lies, it says, whose consciences have been seared with a hot iron. In other words, the more and more we believe the lies, the more and more we believe what the enemy speaks to us about who we are. When he says, you're not good enough, you're not worthy, you're not good. The more and more you believe that, the harder and harder it is to believe what is true. The more and more the enemy speaks and says, well, here's what is right and here's what is wrong and redefines good and evil. The more and more the enemy speaks those lies, the harder and harder it is to believe what is true. Verse 3, he gives some context of some of the ways that they're seeing it played out. He says, they forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. If you point these things out to the brothers, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, brought up in the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance, and for this we labor and strive, that we have put our hope in the living God who is the Savior of all men and especially those who believe. Now I want to highlight just a couple ideas here from this letter that Paul writes to Timothy. Now in verse 6 he uses this phrase. He says, you will be a good minister. He says, you will be a good minister. Now the reason that Paul says you'll be a good minister is because that's what he is. Right? He is a pastor. And so he's using these words saying, all right, this is, the, this, this is what will make you a good minister. And so then he talks about the truths of the faith and the teaching he has heard. Now for all of us as we read this, um, with, with the exception of a couple maybe in this room, you would probably not use the word you'll be a good minister, but you could just put a blank there and fill that in with something else. And says you will be a good blank. And you could just insert in that blank any calling that you might have. You, could be, you will be a good 
husband, a good mom, a good son, a good daughter. You'll be a good employee. You'll be a good neighbor. And then the way, and then when does Paul say that would happen? When, when will you be a good blank? When you are nourished on the truth of the faith and of the good teaching you have followed. Right, the idea for Paul is the thing that makes you good in the places God has placed you is what you're consuming. What you are feeding your soul on. In other words, we have to pay attention to our diet. Although a way I learned this actually growing up, I remember my mom teaching this, and I kind of wrote it off, like it just saying, oh, well, this must be because she doesn't want me to listen to Eminem or something. But I remember her saying this phrase, saying, garbage in, garbage out. And it's a very simplistic idea, but there's a depth here that I believe that Paul is also saying that what you put into you comes out of you. The things that you put into your heart, into your mind, will have implications for wherever you have been called. And so if you are filling your heart and your mind and soul with what is good, if you're nourishing yourself with the truths of faith and of good teaching, that will make you a good employee. But if the things that are nourishing you, if you are feeding on the lies of the enemy, that's going to affect your parenting. If you are feeding on the lies of the enemy, the, the deceptions of the world, it's going to compromise your integrity when you're in a difficult situation. And so what do we do? What I think Paul wants for Timothy and he wants for us is he wants us to starve the flesh and feed the soul. Where we can see this, the way the scriptures describe, use the word flesh refers to our sinful nature. And so when I say starve the flesh, what I'm, I'm referring to is there are some th moments in our life where we want to do the wrong thing. And we know it's the wrong thing. We know right and we wrong, but we, this inward bent on ourselves, our sinful desires, we want to do it anyways. Because in the moment it feels good, in the moment we are satisfied. And so Paul would encourage Timothy, no, no, find ways to starve the flesh, to not feed that desire, to not feed that want. Cut it off. And the best way we can cut off that sinful desire is cut off the source of the lies. Stop feeding ourselves with the lies of the enemy. Instead, we feed our soul. To feed our soul with what Paul describes by saying, as the, feed our soul with the truths of faith and with the good teaching. What are the conversations that we have? What are the things we read and listen to? Is it nourishing to us? Now, this isn't an easy idea. Paul says it, not suggesting like, all right, you just change this and, and it will take, it'll take maybe 24 hours and everything will kick in and you're good. Like, that's not the idea Paul's suggesting. And we know this because the language that Paul uses is hard work language. He says in verse 7, train yourself to be godly. Now, the word train is he is using a sports metaphor here. The language in the Greek is the same word that we, where we would get the word gymnasium for, from. Right? Paul wants you to have in mind an athlete working out. He wants you to have in mind a runner preparing for a race. And so when he says physical training is of some value, he's saying that because we can look at the example of athletes in training that it has value. But then he says, but godliness has value for all things. In other words, the work that it takes to be godly, the practice, the effort, the discipline, Paul says it's always worth it. 
He says it has value, and I love it, value in all things. There is not an area of your life that won't benefit from the discipline of training in godliness. Not a single area. I can, I can almost picture Paul warning Timothy, though, of our world. And, and the, the picture that comes to mind is, is the scene from Wally. I sp- I, this is the scene I picture when it comes to the way we often treat spirituality. That our spiritual and emotional health. We live in a world where we would prefer to not do anything and create reality to be whatever we want it to be right in front of our faces. And so, well, what do I, what do I want to be good? What do I want to be true? Well, I pick that and put that right in front of my face. And so I th- then I just live in that world. Well, what, what, do I, what do I want to feel will be good for my neighbor or good for my community or good for my people? What do I want to be the most loving thing? Well, as long as I, I live in this fake reality, I don't have to do, deal with the fact that I'm not actually a healthy person, that I'm not spiritually healthy. And so we can live in this false reality as though everything is exactly the way we want it. Meanwhile, we are, we are crippled by fear and anxiety and loneliness and hurt because we have missed what is going on inside our souls. And there are moments when we live in this kind of reality as though we put the VR headset on. There's moments where it's good because it's exactly what we want. And it feels like there's connection when there's not actually connection. It feels like there's joy when there's not actually joy. See, the thing, though, that Jesus wants for us, he didn't create a version of faith where we just consume it all. He invites us to be disciples. Disciples aren't consumers. They're disciples. They actually go and do. And so Jesus is inviting us to not just sit and listen, which is a part of it. But he's, he's saying, I want you to go and I want you to become the people I've had in mind. He says, I want to give you a spirituality that is less like being spoon-fed whatever you want to hear. And it's more like a gym. It's more like the thing that's going to pay off 10 years from now. That the kind of person you'll be in your 70s is more peaceful and less anxious than you are today. Which when that's way down the road, it gets really hard to think, how, how do I discipline myself for the person I'm going to be 40 years from now? Right? In our mindset, we can't possibly fathom doing discipline and practicing for that sake. But Paul says, this is why we labor and strive. And he says we labor and strive. I love this because we have put our hope in the living God. He's not saying we labor and strive so that we might hope. He's saying, no, we labor and strive because we can believe what God says. That, that we, we have hope in the living God. Because of that, we labor and strive. Or, or another way, like I love, that, I love that he highlights that God's living. In other words, he's saying, you know Jesus, when he died and everybody saw that happen, well, He rose from the dead, and if he can rise from the dead, and he says, here's what you should do, you should probably listen to that guy. The guy who can rise from the dead is a person worth imitating. And so if Jesus spends time having a Sabbath, we we probably need one too. 
If Jesus needs time in silence and getting away from the crowd, we probably should too. If Jesus spent time fasting, maybe it would be worthwhile for us to consider our well. If Jesus studied and memorized the scripture and he's God, then maybe we should also. Do you know when, though, practice really becomes important? Practice becomes most important when the game's on the line. Or think about if you've ever played sports, when, like, when you are at practice and your coach says, all right, you, get on the free throw line, and if you, may, if you miss this shot, the team runs. That was not ever for that moment, right? It was not about the pressure in that moment. Your team's lined up on the baseline, and it's all on the line. Why? Because a couple weeks from now, you might have a game when you're on the free throw line, and it's all up to you. It was not for the practice. It was for the game. When you had two-a-days and your coach ran you until you were about to puke and you were doing ladder drill after ladder drill and you were exhausted, the coach wasn't doing that just for his own amusement. Maybe a little, but it was, it was actually so that when it was game time and fourth, the fourth quarter was there and you thought you had nothing less, that you knew it was in your head and you could actually keep going even though your body felt like it couldn't go. The practice was for the game. When you were with your dance team practicing the routine in front of a mirror over and over and over again, working on the steps and the moves and the counts, you weren't doing it to watch yourself in a mirror. You were doing it to be on a stage when the judges were judging you. It, the practice was for the game. The practice was for when it really counted. Practice prepares you for the game. And there will be moments of your life when the game's on the line. There will be moments in your life where the way you have practice determines how you respond. There will be a moment when in your workplace you'll be forced with a decision. And the question will be, will he respond with integrity or without integrity? And the thing that determines how you respond in that moment is not, the, is not weighing out the, the choices in the moment. It's going to be how you practiced six years ago. You're going to have a moment when suffering hits you and your family that you did not see coming. And the thing that will help your family in the midst of the suffering is not what you do in the moment. It's going to be what you do right now. It's going to be the way you are preparing yourself for what you don't see coming. There's going to be a moment when you're ready to give up on your marriage because this is not what you ever pictured when you said, I do. And the thing that's going to make you stay faithful is not going to be the way you feel in the marriage. It's going to be the way you practiced. The way you practice loving. The way you practice sacrificing. The way you practice forgiving. And practice looks a thousand different ways because there are countless drills and exercises and disciplines Sometimes it feels more like a scrimmage. It feels like there's more on the line. Sometimes it just feels like running. Sometimes it feels like a sprint and you need a break really quickly. Sometimes it feels like a marathon, like it's never ending. And it's in those thousands of moments that you are training. You're training now for the fear that you'll face tomorrow. You're training now for the conflict that you don't see coming. 
You're training now for the integrity you'll need when no one is looking. You're training now for the ability to pray when it feels like God's absent. Throughout history, the way Christians had referred to this kind of practice was with the language of spiritual disciplines. For thousands of years, Christians have practiced what they call spiritual disciplines, which is simply borrowing from the life and teaching of Jesus so that you could do what Jesus did. So Jesus gets away from the crowd. A spiritual discipline is silence and solitude, getting away from the crowd and being in silence. Jesus studied scripture. A spiritual discipline is reading and studying the scripture. Now for me, anytime I've, all, I've heard the language spiritual disciplines, it sounds impossible. Right? Because I think about the same idea. Right? The idea is really hard. Putting it into practice though, like that seems really impossible. Discipline, like I think of nice and neat and orderly and perfect. And so I prefer the language of practice. Because practice, you're not supposed to be the expert. Practice, you're not supposed to be perfect at it. You just do it. And so I'm not good at prayer. That's why I pray. I'm not an expert in prayer. Sometimes it feels like it's working. Sometimes it feels like it doesn't. Sometimes I'm distracted. Sometimes I feel like I don't hear God speak to me. And so I practice. That's what discipline is. It's practice. It's not being an expert in it. I practice reading the Bible because I, I, I read and then I hit Leviticus and Numbers and I don't want to keep reading anymore. Right? I practice because it's hard. Like it's hard to do the work to find what God is saying and doing in some of those difficult moments in the scriptures. I practice because it's not easy. But I practice not because I want to do that today, but because I don't know the moment when I'm going to need it. Rich Velotis, who's a pastor in New York, I love the way he describes his practice of prayer. He said, I used to believe that distractions while in prayer was a sign that I was a bad Christian. As it turns out, distraction in prayer is a sign that I'm a human being. See, what happens when we learn to practice, when we learn to do these spiritual disciplines, is you're not going to find you got, you're an expert at anything. You're going to find you're simply practicing that you're a human being that you're distracted, that you're learning, that some things work and some feel like they don't. Or I love how Ruth Haley Barton, who is an author who writes about a number of different disciplines, in a book about silence and solitude, she said this, for the first year or so, it seemed like all I did was struggle to the 10-minute mark, all while noticing the noisiness inside my own head. Where she described the, the idea in this, of in trying to spend time in silence and solitude, she said, like, for that first year, I just kept thinking of all the things on my to-do list. But she kept practicing. Because you don't quit because you're not good at it. You keep practicing it because we're not good at it. Because it's in the practice that we are being formed into the likeness of Jesus. That the Holy Spirit is changing who we are as we do the things that Jesus invited us to do. Now, historically, the spiritual disciplines fall into two primary categories. We can call those practices of engagement and practices of abstinence. 
And so this is an, an exhaustive list, but I want to give you an example because my hope in talking about these things is that you might find yourself drawn to something, that there is something that you can put into practice in your life. And so practices of engagement would be things like reading and studying the scripture, being in community, um, service, prayer, hospitality. All of those things would be their engagement because they're practices where you add, where you do something you weren't doing. Practices of abstinence would be the things that you're removing things out of your schedule, out of your life. And so a practice would be practicing the Sabbath, having 24 hours where you're not working, practicing simplicity, practicing fasting, practicing silence and solitude. Now all of these things can look a lot of different ways. Right, community can happen in a large group, it can happen in a small group, it can happen with, with a couple people in deep intentional relationship. Service can happen on a mission field, it can happen in your office. Prayer could be written prayers, it could be prayers at certain times of the day, it could be prayer through music, it could be prayer for the sake of other people, it could be listening in prayer. Sabbath, I believe, is one of the most overlooked of the Ten Commandments. It's the one we most easily write off as not applying um, but it's an invaluable reminder that some days we should not work because the world doesn't depend on us. In simplicity, we remove some of the things. We, we spend less. Maybe we wear less. We, sh we, we cut out some of the stores we would normally shop at. Fasting, properly speaking, is just not eating food. Right? You remove, remove food for a portion of time. One of the interesting ideas about this spiritual practice is I recently learned um, that research has actually connected it to being incredibly helpful for addictive behaviors. So if somebody struggles with addiction, actually starving the flesh for a period of time works the same parts of your brain that needs to say no to whatever it is that you're tempted to do. Now you can also apply fasting to other areas like technology or, or things like that. Silence and solitude is just what it sounds. The opposite of community, just you in quiet. Now, here's the thing. All of these have value. They're different practices which work different muscles for different results. Some which you'll be gravitated, that you will gravitate to, some that you will not want to do. All of them, though, are good for you. And so we practice them, not because we're experts at them, but because Jesus did them. And when Jesus invites us to come and see, he also invites us to do the things that he did. And so my question for you is, what are you going to practice? What are the disciplines that the Holy Spirit is inviting you to consider in this season for you, for your family? Because it's in the practice that I believe God is preparing you for something. And I don't know what he's preparing you for. And you don't know what he's preparing you for. But it's in the practice that you will be formed into the likeness of Jesus. And by being more like Jesus, you are prepared for the moment where you need to know what Jesus would do and not what you would do. And so let's pray. And my prayer for you is that you will practice. Practice following Jesus wherever he takes you. Jesus, we thank you that you are a God who loves us, that you have given yourself freely to us, that our hope comes from knowing that you are a living God, that death doesn't win, that sin doesn't win, that fear doesn't win. 
And so we thank you that you rescue us, that you set us free, and that you set us free and invite us to come and follow you. And so Jesus, I pray that you would show us in this season the practices that we need to integrate into our life, that you would surround us with people trying to practice following you, that you would build in our lives the habits and the muscle memory so that in the moments when we need it the most, that we will have been prepared by our faithfulness and our obedience to doing what you've asked us to do. Jesus, help us to surrender to that to surrender to the work that you want to do in us and through us for ourselves and for the sake of our neighbor.